This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast. Today we are speaking to Dr. Danielle Slakoff about media representations of women and girl victims and perpetrators. We recognize that this topic may be difficult for some of you. Please remember that you can always turn the episode off and listen later or even listen with a friend. My name is Dr. Alexa Sardina. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ackerman. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Fear. Today we are joined by Dr. Danielle Slakoff. She's an assistant professor of criminal justice at California State University, Sacramento. Her research interests include media representations of women and girl victims and perpetrators, women's issues within the criminal justice system, race and ethnicity, true crime, and domestic violence. Dr. Slakoff's commentary on media portrayals of the justice system have been featured in outlets such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Time Magazine. You can find her on Twitter at dslakoffphd. Hi, Danielle. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan of the podcast, so to be able to be here as a guest is is awesome. So thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Well, we're a huge fan of you. True story. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, we're so impressed by the work that you do, and it's such important work. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what piqued your interest in studying media representations of interpersonal and sexual violence. Absolutely. So I actually got my bachelor's degree in journalism. And part of the reason that happened is because I was, I've always been an avid media consumer, and I've always been really interested in crime television, news, things that have to do um, with media portrayals. Um, but it was actually during my undergrad that I was given the assignment to look into a topic every single week for an entire semester and write a blog about it. And I realized during that project that my interests in crime went beyond uh, what other people were kind of putting on their blog. So <laughs> uh, my blog ended up being about missing people. And I didn't realize at the time that other people were picking other very, very interesting and important topics too. But a lot of them picked broad topics such as like fashion and movies, uh, stuff like that. So when I presented my blog on missing people, it became very clear to both myself and the professor that there was a deep interest that was underlying this because my topic was so different than everyone else's in the class. So it's sort of interesting because at the time I thought I would be a journalist, an investigative journalist, um, looking into these issues. But I took 
my senior year of college, I took intro to criminal justice and I realized that, you know, maybe this was the path for me instead. So that's how I ended up moving to a master's degree in criminal justice. But yeah, I really was born out of my interest in, in media and recognizing even as a consumer that there were definitely differences across race when it came to media portrayals. Thank you for that. I, I always love when we have guests on the show talking about how they came to the place that, you know, the three of us have come to. Uh, and it's so interesting to hear your story. Um, can you, um, I guess, generally speaking, why is this area of research so important? So I think that, and I'm, I'm putting myself in this too, I think sometimes we like to believe that we're immune to messaging. But in reality, the media is incredibly powerful and it has a powerful influence on people. Even for those people who are not avid media consumers, which I definitely am, but even for those people that are not, some messages are truly unavoidable. Um, right now, the war in Ukraine is something that everybody knows about, even if you're not an avid media consumer, correct? right? Same with the Gabby Petito case. I had family members who you know, don't watch the news at all message me about it because they saw it on social media, right? So I think that understanding that the media does have this powerful influence on us, even if we're not necessarily conscious of it. And quite a bit of research shows that, that um, the more we see some repeated messages, they start to become more and more internalized. The other thing is that people who are not directly impacted by crime um, often learn about the criminal justice system, victims, uh, perpetrators through media. And as criminal justice professors, we are often faced with having to unteach some of what students learn in the media, right? So I think that's why it's so important. And I, you know, I will stand beside that for my whole career because I really do believe that it's an area that needs to continue to be talked about. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that you know, you've been in a lot of media outlets recently and, you know, having um, sort of more people exposed to this notion of or theme of white woman syndrome. Um, so I was wondering if you can give our listeners an overview of what that means. And you also just uh, mentioned uh, the Gabby Petito case. Um, so maybe you can use that to talk about how this case fits within that phenomenon. Absolutely. So the missing white woman syndrome is actually a term that was created by the late and amazing journalist Gwen Ifill. And it refers to the fact that the media overrepresent uh, white missing women and girls compared to missing women and girls of color. Several studies, including my own work with Dr. Hank Fradella, has actually shown that this is a real phenomenon. So just to kind of give a backstory about our study, we actually looked at four years worth of stories about white and black missing women and girls, and that was over 11 different U.S. newspapers, so quite a large sample. And what we found was that, yes, the white missing women and girls received more initial coverage, and they received more repeated coverage. And if you have questions, I'm happy to explain why I think the repeated piece is so important as well. So the missing white woman syndrome is something that came up again in the media with the Gabby Petito case. For the listeners here that maybe need a, just a brief refresh, um, Gabby went missing on a cross-country road trip with her partner, her boyfriend, 
and um, ultimately was found deceased in what appears to be an intimate partner homicide. That's what the police have decided. Um, Very sadly, the perpetrator in this case also died by suicide after the fact. And so during this time when she was um, not found or not located yet, the media attention surrounding Gabby's case was astronomical. Um, A a journalist, actually a, a Sacramento State University alumni, a journalist looked into CNN programming and actually found that Gabby Petito and Joe Biden um, were actually mentioned almost the exact same amount of times over a one-month period. Yeah, which really puts into perspective how much media attention that she received. And there's a lot of factors that go into this. She had a um, Instagram profile with uh, these, you know, gorgeous pictures of her. And research does show that people are drawn to media through imagery, right? So the media themselves had this, you know, treasure trove of images of Gabby to pull from that really impacted people. They were able to see these images of her, for example, next to a mural with angel wings on. And that became a picture that was shown over and over and over again. So yes, it is a very strong example of the missing white woman syndrome. I would say that um, there are unique aspects of the case, but we continue to see that white missing women and girls and missing women and girls of color are treated very differently in the media. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that study that you did with Hank Fredella? When you, you know, you talked about the initial coverage and then sort of the long-term coverage. Absolutely. So in that article with Dr. Hank Fredella, we found that white missing women and girls had more initial coverage, meaning that they had more um, stories written about them, but then they also had more repeated coverage, meaning follow-up stories. And so the reason that's so important is because not as we talked about a little bit earlier, not everyone is an avid media consumer like I am. And so sometimes people are just, um, you know, in the grocery store and they look over and see the front page and that's as much news as they're going to get that day. Right. And so if somebody's story is written about multiple times or repetitively, it's much more likely that that non-avid media consumer, that person that is just going about their day and and not as into the media, they're still going to get that message, right? And so you saw that with the Gabby Petito case, where even people who were not avid media consumers were picking up on the story from various people, sometimes their friends, their families, their coworkers, a lot of times on social media, because it became a huge thing on social media as well. Um, so the repeated coverage is super important, right? Because it it basically tells the reader or the viewer, the listener, that this is an important case, that it's not going away. And to see in our study that the Black missing women and girls had mu- more of those one-off stories, right? They were written about once and then not written about again. Uh, I think that's just another example of the difference that you see across race and you know, it's. I, I like to say, you know, quantity is a huge problem, but there's also the quality of the stories as well. Um, the victim blaming inherent in some of the stories about missing women of color and victims of color is is another huge issue. 
So, Danielle, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think a lot of what we saw with Gabby's case is a lot of folks, you know, regular people, everyday people on social media were posting a lot of information about her case. I think some people even dedicated, you know, entire Instagram pages to just talking about her case. Um, So I'm wondering if uh, that people sort of picked up on that because they are so used to seeing those media representations of white women um, shown in the media. And so that's sort of what they replicate. Or do you think that there was a heightened interest amongst people that were already active in social media in her case because she had been posting so much? I think that with the Gabby case, you see a few things happening. So I definitely think that the mainstream media and social media both giving these repetitive messages about how important she is. And and let me be clear, um, she is absolutely important. And what happened to her is a tragedy. And I think it's super important to acknowledge that uh, when we talk about her case. Um, But I think that when you start to see those messages repeating in multiple platforms, um, we do tend to internalize that this is an important person, right? And I think that's something that media research has continued to show is that it's really the repetition that can be super important. Mm -hmm. There is also the aspect, though, that um, on the outside, this looked like a very happy couple. And there's been actually some research that looks into why women are drawn to true crime. And one of the things that comes up in that study is that um, some women are drawn to these stories to learn warning signs. Hmm. And so I would argue that there is some people who were so invested in this case to try to understand, you know, how could something like this happen Mm -hmm. when on the outside, this appeared to be a very happy couple. Uh, In reality, there were um, signs of domestic violence that predated this trip that, of course, did not come out until afterward, um, after she went missing. And so I think that's another thing that um, is more maybe personal to on the actual viewer or consumer level. However, I do think that on some level, there are people that are engaging with these stories um, to learn about what happened and potentially how they could protect themselves. That's really interesting. I, I never heard of that before. Um, it's really fascinating information. Yeah. So Danielle, you said something uh, when you answered that last question about how the repetitive nature of stories about certain individuals makes it seem like they are important people. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can talk about that in relation to what that says about people that we don't cover in the media uh in the repetitive ways that we do specific white women. And I'm wondering if you can then tie that to the kinds of criminal legal policies that we've talked about on the show before, um, in particular, post-conviction sex crimes policies that are all named after white children who have you know, been sexually harmed and then murdered. Absolutely. So I highly recommend if your listeners are interested in learning more about the history of, um, you know, basically missing white woman syndrome to check out um, a true crime scholar named Jean Murley, because she actually talks about in her work that this idea of uh, white women and white girls being this ideal victim, which I'm happy to define if you're interested, um, that this actually dates back all the way to the 18th century, um, where there was an influx of 
captivity narratives. At the time, um, it was actually stories that tended to be about uh, white women who were abducted and harmed by um, American Indian or Native American people. And then you go, you know, further in history, or excuse me, more recently in history, and you see that um, in the post-Reconstruction era, in films like The Birth of a Nation, you see this message of Black men being the primary danger to white women. So something I think is important to kind of peel back, and Jean Murley in her work does such a fantastic job of this, is pointing out that this is actually a long period of white women being held to this ideal victim standard. And what that means, of course, is that everyone who does not fit into that stereotype, the ideal victim stereotype, is not viewed as being as worthy and as important, right? And uh, Alyssa, you made such a great point talking about some of the named laws that we have. And I have to shout out the work by Teresa Kulig and Francis Cullen. Uh, The article came out in 2017, and they actually looked at 51 named laws, meaning laws that were named after a victim, from 1990 to 2016. And what they found was the vast majority of those laws were named after a white victim. 86% of them were named after a white victim. So in this article, which is titled, Where is Letitia's Law? They're basically saying that you can see in policy that certain victims matter more to the justice system, right? And that's not to say that these cases are not important, of course. However, it's important to point out that in naming these laws after victims, we are honoring their memory in a way that people of color are not being honored in the criminal justice system. That information in the face of the fact that we know that young children who are um, black and brown are more likely to be victimized and experience higher rates of victimization than white children. So it's, you know, just such a significant uh, imbalance um, and, and disproportionate imbalance of of that. Yeah, it sends a very striking message. Yeah, it really does. And I think that sometimes and you know, I've I've been doing this work for nine years now focused on media. And sometimes I get asked questions about, you know, do I really think this matters? Or do what is the implication of this? And I think that those named laws are an implication of this, right? That at every point um, through the media to trial everything, there has been this repetitive message that this person matters and they do matter, of course. Um, However, there are so many victims that don't get nearly the attention um, that they deserve. And so I think about this a lot as being one of the primary implications is, is who are we actually naming our legislation after? And it's very closely linked to who got the media attention when the case was actually happening. So, Well, and isn't it true, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that there have been some movements on social media around the fact that there are so many black and brown people who have gone missing that the media hasn't covered at all. Yeah, this is a major issue um, within the black community as well as the indigenous community and so many others. But there is a lot of activism specifically around those two groups because the rate at which uh, black people and indigenous people go missing are incredibly high. And yet they very rarely get 
the media attention. You know, I think that um, in the Gabby Petito case, which she was found in Wyoming, which is a state that has a very high number of missing um, indigenous women. And none of those indigenous women got nearly the attention of Gabby. The other thing is that Gabby, uh, at the height of the case, had five different agencies working to find her. And so that's something that many activists have pointed out is that it can be hard to even get one agency to assist some families. So you see that play out on that level as well. So I think the Gabby Petito case is something that when we look at the conversations we've been having as a country, as a society for the last two years, you kind of see that people, um, some people are reckoning for the first time with systemic racism. And I think the media and these conversations about Gabby, um, in some, for some people, are their first sort of tiptoe into understanding these differences. And so I, I honestly believe that the missing white woman syndrome, it's been talked about before. It's been talked about well before George Floyd's death and um, the uh, protests and, and conversations around racial justice. However, I think the reason why it became su such a big topic now is because of that context. And so I, I will say I've been teaching about this topic for a long time, but it seems to have landed very differently in the current context um, because I think we're seeing that this is one really salient example of differential treatment at the systems level, right? And the media is a very important system um, in our country. Thank you. Can we shift a little bit and talk about media representations of black and brown women who do experience sexual violence? And, you know, I guess before answering that question, I'm wondering why it was important that we named missing white women syndrome uh, and to talk, like, why did we have to talk through that before we could turn to conversations about historically marginalized and minoritized women? Absolutely. So I think that the missing white woman syndrome goes hand in hand with this idea of the ideal victim. And as I mentioned a little bit earlier, the ideal victim has historically been uh, white women and girls. And so the ideal victim is someone who is viewed as, um, when they experience a crime, as being innocent, being blameless, and being in need of protection. In essence, ideal victims are viewed as being worthy of not only our attention, but our resources as well. And so I think it's important to talk through the missing white woman syndrome and the ideal victim stereotype because we need to understand that women who do not conform to that ideal victim stereotype are often blamed for their victimization. And this is where we start to see differential portrayals across race. So in my research with Dr. Pauline Brennan, we actually looked at front page newspaper stories about white, black, and Latina women and girl victims. So there were victims of sexual harm included in that study. And what we found, unfortunately, was that the Latina and Black women and girls were portrayed much more negatively than the white women and girl victims. Specifically, they were portrayed as risk-taking at the time that the crime occurred. So um, things like um, drinking alcohol, being out late, things like that. 
Um, but they were also portrayed as quote unquote bad women. So people that were, um, for example, had an arrest history or had lost custody of their children in the past at some point. So bringing in some of these very negative um, pieces about their lives in stories about their victimizations, right? And so we basically argued in our paper that you really see that the ideal victim stereotype, it's not just about the quantity of stories about them. It's also about what is actually said in the stories. And we continue to see that the Latina and Black women and girl victims were portrayed in these negative ways. On the other hand, um, the white women and girls were portrayed as being blameless. And so this is super important to talk about, this difference that we see across race and the fact that um, there are these very clear racial divides when we talk about uh, the portrayal of these women. And that's really really interesting and of course important to our podcast and what we focus on in terms of sexual harm and sex crimes. Do you want to expand a little bit on how women of color who are survivors of sex crimes are presented by the media and maybe also talk about why we see these biased narratives persist over such an extended period of time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so specifically, we saw things such as uh, what they were dressed, what were they were wearing at the time that crimes occurred. Um, like I mentioned, the um, alcohol, drinking, uh, being under the influence of um, drugs was another aspect of victim blaming that we saw. And then, as I mentioned, descriptions of you know being in a relationship with somebody who had a criminal history or even having an arrest history themselves – I would argue these are all ways um, that are dehumanizing. Um, They're essentially blaming them for um, being in these situations. And, you know, victim blaming, I've been thinking about this a lot in the last uh, month, um, specifically, and I know I've talked to Alexa about this, specifically with regards to what's been going on with Kim Kardashian and Kanye West and how a lot of people have talked about you know, I don't like Kim Kardashian, but right. There's always that, that, uh, that little lead in. Right. And I've been thinking a lot about victim blaming and the fact that there is this standard of the perfect victim, right? The person that did absolutely nothing to precipitate in, in the eyes of the viewers and consumers, what happened. And it just, it, it's an impossible task. It's impossible to get there, right? Um, I think you could go back into anyone's history and find something that could be used this way in a negative way. And so it's been really, really something I've been thinking through a lot is just what is being gained by these negative portrayals? What is it that is underlying this? And I just can't help but think that Um, And so much of the victim blaming uh, literature shows this is that um, sometimes if we're able to separate ourselves from the victim or say, well, I wouldn't do that or I wouldn't put myself in that situation, we we ourselves feel safer. And so I think that really is underlying a lot of this, um, a lot of these narratives. It's a little bit of an aside, but I think one of our most important findings is that in our study looking at white, black, and Latina women and girl victims, we saw that the women of color were often portrayed as being in unsafe 
environments. And so that was really interesting to us. It was a little bit unexpected because we basically argue that it's normalizing those victimizations. If if they're in a neighborhood that is, and this is not a joke, some of the stories would say, you know, graffiti covered, nobody in this city is untouched by homicide, you know, those kinds of descriptions. Um, by saying those things, you're essentially saying that crime is normal here, right? It's, it's, it's expected. And, um, and therefore, you know, reading between the lines, it's not as important or as shocking. On the flip side with the white women and girl victims, we saw that their environments were often portrayed as safe environments, right? Nothing like this ever happens in this city, that's almost a direct quote from one of the stories. And so that's the flip side of that is this is shocking. They could not have expected this. You know, it's scary. And so I, I just can't help but think that that's also really important underlying some of this is just the normalization of, uh, of victimization of certain people. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You know, and it's so interesting when I talk about, not necessarily in my sex crimes class, but when I'm teaching, you know, more general uh, classes on the criminal legal system or on the correction system, one of the things that I often talk about is this idea that, you know, some neighborhoods are, quote, unquote, more dangerous than others. And what I try to get students to understand is that it's what we name as crime. Um. But that, you know, in particular, when we're talking about things like sexual violence, there ha it's happening everywhere, right? So to think that it, well, it never happens here, it does. It absolutely does. Um, and so I just think that's really interesting to name that, you know, the idea that uh, media representations of sexual harm suggest that you know, these things don't happen in certain neighborhoods. When, as criminologists, we know that they do. They happen every day. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, as you can probably tell, I could talk about this forever because <laughs> I just really think that um, it's something that's super important. And, and maybe people aren't as conscious of the fact that they have gotten so many of these messages over the course of our lives, right? I mean, very young children, I, I can't remember the exact number, but very young children have seen like an astronomical number of deaths on television. You know, it's like, it's so normalized violence in our culture and in our media and our entertainment. Um, and I think that sometimes because it's so normalized, we we don't realize the long-term impacts of, of hearing these same types of stories over and over and over again. So as we're having this conversation, I was thinking about the just world hypothesis, which is something that Alyssa and I talk a lot about in classes and also in trainings. Um, and sort of this notion of, you know, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Um, so therefore, if something bad happens to you, you are somehow deserving of it, right? And 
I, I think that, you know, that links up very much to the conversation that we're we're having now, right? And that often leaks into not just media representations, but if there is a trial, for example, um, there's a lot of research that shows that jurors buy into this. And so if that case can be made that, you know, this is a bad woman or they were in an unsafe place, that they're somehow deserving. And, you know, that allows others to feel safe. And that since I'm not like this person, then this wouldn't happen to me. Um, and it others people. Absolutely. I think that it really goes back to the victim blaming that's so inherent in these stories about, um, in this, in my research, Latina and Black women and girls that have been victimized. It, it really is something that is underlying so many of these stories. And I do think that that is what is so insidious about victim blaming narratives is this belief that you know, if I can just not do these things, then I'll be safe when we know that with, you know, sex crimes and domestic violence, that so often those risks come from within the home, within our intimate relationships, within our friendships, our churches, I mean, you name it, but it's generally people close to us. And so I think that's something that is really closely connected to this conversation that we're having. Absolutely. So, Danielle, you were recently um, a guest speaker in one of my classes, and you brought up a case that I hadn't heard of uh, yet, and that was a couple of weeks ago, was the Lauren Smith-Fields case. Uh, and that um, seemed to sort of emphasize or exemplify that there is a shift being seen on social media in terms of what victims are getting media attention in a lot of ways. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that case links up with social media representations? Of course. So the Lauren Smith Fields case is another case that I've recently been talking about um, with people in the media. Um, Lauren Smith Fields um, is this uh, beautiful woman, a black woman um, from Connecticut who um, at some point died over the course of a date with somebody that she met on Bumble. And so this case did not get mainstream media attention until there was a massive increase in social media attention. In fact, as I've mentioned multiple times, I am an avid media consumer. It's probably too much and I need to scale back. But I first heard about the case on Instagram. Somebody that I follow had posted a Instagram story saying, um, you know, justice for Lauren. Um, they're not looking into her case the way they should be. And that was the first time I saw it. And then a couple of days later, I saw it again on Twitter, right? So both of those are social media. It was not in mainstream media. And you kind of see in this instance that her family, her friends really took it upon themselves to um, basically come to social media and talk about the issues with her case, the issues with the lack of um, um, police investigation in the immediate aftermath of her death. And, you know, on one hand, I think that it's amazing to see this, um, almost, I would almost call it social media activism, almost this um, purposeful messaging, trying to get the word out and um, having it go basically viral so that people can um, learn about the case and, and try to place pressure. But on the flip side, as somebody who has 
grieved before who has lost a family member, I will tell you that in the immediate aftermath of losing somebody, regardless of the circumstances, it is very hard to function. And so I couldn't help but think to myself, here is her family, her friends that are grieving, and yet they're going to social media and creating these videos to try to get attention for her when you know, I view it as like, I just wish they could have the space to grieve and to mourn. Um, but the sad reality is, is that they're not going to be able to uh, maybe grieve and mourn that the way they want to unless there's some sort of outcome. And so I couldn't help but think of that is just how how sad it is. And and we actually saw this as well with another case um, of a woman named Vanessa Guillen, where her family was literally standing outside of the um, military base from which she went missing and basically holding visual standing there waiting until the media would come and see them standing there. And just, you know, it's, it's just something that I can't help but think is, is really, really sad that they have to go to such extreme lengths um, to try to get that attention. I have, depending on the day, it really depends on how I feel about social media. Um, On one hand, I think it's an incredible tool. In the Lauren Smith Smith Fields case, we saw that her family, her friends, her loved ones were able to elevate her case on social media to the point where the mainstream media took notice. And that is, in my mind, an amazing example of the power of social media. On the flip side, there's always a concern about it getting to be so big that potentially people are, um, you know, taking matters into their own hands, calling in tips that have nothing to do with what happened, you know, potentially actually slowing down the investigation. So it's a very fine line. Um, however, I think we need to be really clear too that the diversity in our mainstream media is nowhere where it needs, nowhere close to where it needs to be. And so that has come up time and time again from activists is until we see a, a mainstream media that reflects our country, we're not going to see mainstream news stories that reflect our country, right? And so social media is one of the beauties of it is that it gives everybody that opportunity to uh, report on what they care about and to share about their loved ones, their friends. So like I said, depending on the day is how I feel about social media in general. Like, it really does go back and forth. But the amazing activism that we see on social media continues to give me hope. But then there's also the bittersweet aspect that it shouldn't have to come to this, right? It shouldn't have to be this way. I, I would hope and maybe we can talk about the future. I would hope that media will really be taken to task for these um, for these differential portrayals and, and try to make a change on their own. So, Danielle, as I hear you talking about this, it seems that, uh, at least from what I'm hearing, that social media doesn't follow the same kinds of patterns as traditional media outlets. And, and maybe it does. Uh, just in the two cases that you're talking about with social media activism, it seems like perhaps social media is different. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how social media may operate in the same traditional ways as media outlets or maybe how it doesn't and why you think that's the case? 
So I think with social media, everybody has the opportunity to create, um, you know, create or share their own stories, their lived experiences. It can be somewhat tough to pin down which things go quote unquote viral. But we have seen recently that family members of missing, um, in this case, uh, a missing black woman, they were able to get that wide attention based on social media. So that was, like I said, kind of a a win in that aspect because they were able to make it happen for themselves. Um, However, I have to point out this amazing study by Michelle Jonas and her colleagues that came out in 2021 where they actually were granted access to a Facebook page about missing people. So basically this Facebook page posts about missing people and they were able to see which posts got the most clicks, the most shares. And what they found was that the the posts about the missing white people received way more attention than the posts about the missing people of color. So even on social media, when we talk about consuming um, or sharing, you know, I would say that this study, and it's a very, um, very much cutting edge, and I think there's going to be a lot more research on social media because of this study. Unfortunately, we see the same patterns play out in terms of what stories are being shared, right? So it, it's almost, in my mind, it's almost hard to know how is it that a certain story or case is going to go viral. Um, I don't know that I could really speak specifically to, um, you know, what is it about certain cases that make it go viral when it comes to black and brown communities. I just know that we have seen recently a few examples um, where the families and the loved ones have been able to get that attention on social media and to take it a step further, have been able to turn that into mainstream media, you know, been able to say, look, this case matters. Look how many people on social media are asking for justice. And sort of connected to that, too, I think that it could also be some of the circumstances surrounding those cases that get a lot of attention, too. So like with Lauren Smith Fields, you, I think, baked into part of the issue with the case is the systemic racism reflected in the police response or lack of police response to the case. Um, Can you talk a little bit about those details so we can give folks that context? Because I think that really um, energized a lot of people as well to say like, hey, look at the parents and family should not have to be, you know, screaming to get attention about this case, something should have been done. Absolutely. So um, in the Lauren Smith Fields case, as I mentioned, she was having a date with somebody she met on Bumble. It was a white man in this instance. And, um, you know, the story is, is that when he awoke in the morning, she had passed away at some point overnight um, in bed. So the family was not notified that she had died. And very quickly, they realized something was wrong because she was in in very constant communication with her family. So they went to her home. There was a note on the door that said, if you're looking for Lauren, come speak to apartment management or management of the community she was living in. They went to talk to management and they were the ones that told the family that she had died. And so there was just this complete miss, right, on the police side is that they were not notified. Um, Time Magazine just did an amazing piece on the Lauren Smith Fields case where they describe and family members describe that 
Um, there were there was blood on the sheets. There was a used condom on the scene. None of that was processed by the police. Um, her toxicology report has come back that there were drugs in her system. However, her family maintains that she never used drugs um, and that that was not something that would be in her system um, by her own accord, right? So there's just this lack of investigation that has happened that has been so central to this case. And I also want to point out that I believe it was the same day, it may have been the same couple of days, that another Black woman in the same city had died and her family was also not notified. And so this has become a story about these two Black women that from the police side um, did not get treatment that um, family and family members and friends have pointed out they they feel like a white victim or a white person who died under these mysterious circumstances would have received. I think you shared so much important information for us and our listeners. And I guess our question or my question now is what's next? What do we do? Um, what are some of the implications of your research and how can we make a shift in these these narratives? Oh, man. So I think of a few things because it's a multi-pronged issue, right. right? I think that in terms of my research, I will be, you know, I'll be very honest and, and maybe you will have people in the media listening. I have tried to be more vocal about the fact that I would love to sit down and speak with journalists and organizations about my findings and some of the subtle and sometimes not subtle ways that victim blaming is really present in these stories. So I have been trying because <laughs> um, I do think part of it is is recognizing what this looks like and, and being clear with journalists about what this looks like. It's important that we have diversity in journalism. I mentioned a little bit earlier, diversity in journalism is nowhere where it needs to be. And the further or the higher up you go in journalism, the less and less diversity we see, right? And so that's something else that I think just on a, you know, common sense level, if the newsroom doesn't reflect the community, we're not going to see stories that necessarily reflect the same community. And I think that's a huge issue. There are so many community activists that are doing work on the ground to try to bring attention to these issues. I will shout out a Northern California um group called Restoring Justice for Indigenous People that has been doing a lot of work around bringing attention to missing and murdered Indigenous women, um, not just in Northern California, but um, around the country. The Black and Missing Foundation recently had a documentary um, created about them. And I will say that in terms of activism and people doing amazing work, I, I just can't even put into words how amazed I am by them. Um, they are. Um, they talk about this in the documentary that this is not even their full time job, and yet they are so um, central to getting attention to so many missing um, Black people across the country. So if you're listening and you do not follow the Black and Missing Foundation, absolutely do so. Um, they are constantly posting on their Instagram and Twitter accounts. Um, another thing, and this is kind of going back to this is very multi pronged is that there is some uh, research that suggests that some of the victim blaming language we see in the media 
is actually starts with police reports, right? So that some of that language is actually being brought over from the police report. And so I would say another step in this or another aspect of this is training officers about not using that victim blaming language within their reports, knowing that those often are key documents for journalists to write their stories, right? So I think it's it's very complex. I think all of these things can be helpful. The other thing I heard from journalists is that citizen pressure can be really important. So, um, for example, if there is a case, if there is a case that is in your city that you realize is not getting attention, you know, emailing uh, the local news agency and saying, "Why aren't you covering this case?" They actually said that can be helpful for journalists because sometimes the journalists get turned down, right? They they come and say, I want to cover this case. And then they're told, oh, there's not enough you know, pressure for this. There's not enough time for this. Yeah. So having citizens say, I have an interest in this can be another tool. So there are so... I. I wish I had like a perfect answer because the reality is, is that there are so many different aspects of how we got here and how we continue to see this language. I think all of these are key ways to move forward. I guess on one hand, it's overwhelming because I gave you so much. But on the other hand, hopefully it's a little bit, um, you know, helpful to know that there are things that can be done, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there's two things that come to mind. Uh, for me. And one, Lex, we talk about this a lot uh, when we talk about how the criminal legal system is not set up to really do anything to uh, honor the needs of people who have experienced sexual harm, in part because people, in particular, historically minoritized people do not trust the criminal legal system. Right. And so I wonder if there's a piece here, too, that um, you know, the media is not necessarily picking up cases of missing black and brown women in part because there's a lack of trust for law enforcement in the first place. Yeah. And so they're not going yeah. to law enforcement because they don't believe law enforcement will help them. Right. And that kind of leads to the um, thought that was percolating earlier. And that is, you know, I was teaching a class yesterday on the correction system. And one of the things that I said was that the system as it currently operates, whether we're talking about the criminal legal system or the media system or whatever system, it operates as it does because it benefits certain people. Right. And until the people who it benefit, well, and it operates at a cost to others. To others. And so until the people who benefit from the system want to see the system change, perhaps nothing's going to change. Yeah. And that sounds very negative. <laughs> no, I think it sounds I think it sounds realistic. And we haven't talked about this yet, but I have been open about this in some of my interviews is, you know, I'm often asked are we going to see a change, right? Is is it possible for this to change? And one of the things that I've been open and honest about is that the mainstream media makes their money from advertising revenue generally. And what we see with stories about white missing women and girls or uh, white women and girl victims of harm is that these stories get a lot of attention, clicks, shares. 
And so there is a vested interest, a financial interest in repeating stories that they know do well, right? And I don't think that we can really, you know, we are a capitalist society. I don't think that we can um, discount the profit motive for why we continue to see these stories over and over again. In the piece with Dr. Hank Fredella, we wrote like, it sounds really weird, but we need to find a way to um, get this level of attention for missing women and girls of color and make it so that they beget as many clicks, mm-hmm. as many shares, because the way the media operates, mo- most of the mainstream media operates, is based on advertising revenue and is based on those clicks. So it's it's very unfortunate that we see... I would argue this capitalistic aspect really underlying some of why we continue to see the same stories over and over again, because political um, firestorm, celebrity gossip, missing white women and girls, those are three topics that just over and over again get a ton of engagement, right? Um, so it's just it's something that I've been thinking about a lot, too, is is how do we break that? And maybe that's where social media comes mm-hmm. in, Right. Is that they're not they're not beholden to those same um, issues. With that said, I do want to point out that some social media, some people do so well on social media that they are able to make money <laughs> off of social media, and that's that's a whole other conversation. But in general, I, I I think about that, and I've been honest about that with several of the journalists I've talked to. Is that I do think the profit making enterprise of the missing white woman syndrome is a big part of why it persists. You've certainly given us and our listeners a lot to think about, Danielle, and we really um, appreciate you you know, dedicating some time to speak to us. And I just think your work is so important. And I'm so happy to have you as a colleague and honored to have you as a colleague and friend because you know, your work, your voice is really important to this movement. So thank you for being here. Yes, thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much um, for having me and letting me come talk about these issues. Like I said, I've been doing this work for nine years, and um, it's been interesting to have, just in the last several months, um, so much time to reflect on what this kind of means in a broader context. Mm. And, um, you know, you inviting me here today and and giving me the safe space to talk through some of these things, it was um, very rewarding for me too. So I thank you both so much for having me. And um, to your listeners, please, uh, if you're interested in learning more, um, at the top, they mentioned my Twitter is at PhD. I'm frequently posting about my work and other missing persons cases there. So um, definitely check that out. Thank you for listening to Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast, a part of Article 3 Podcasting Network. We would like to extend a special thanks to Dr. Danielle Slakoff for sharing her important research with us. You can find links to her work and to other research articles and organizations mentioned during the episode in the show notes. Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast is written and hosted by Alexa Sardina and Alyssa Ackerman. All episodes are produced and edited by Christopher Antico. We would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast and answer any questions that you might have about the topics we've covered or general questions about us. 
You can contact us at beyondfearpodcast at gmail.com. Remember, you can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all other podcasting platforms. Head to our website at www.beyondfearpodcast.com for blog posts, resources, readings, and episode transcripts. Follow us on Twitter at Fear Crimes, Instagram at Beyond Fear Podcast, and like and follow our Facebook group called Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast.